This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45. We're continuing our series entitled uh, Affliction, Suffering in the Sovereignty of God. So many times people think when they follow Jesus, all of their problems go away. Uh, that Jesus fixes everything and life is better uh, and you'll never experience heartache or disappointment or any type of suffering. That's not a biblical message. The Bible tells us that we will endure difficulties. But the Bible also tells us that God is sovereign. That means he's in charge of everything from beginning to end. And so today we're taking a look at the sovereignty of God. Last week we looked at God's sovereignty and, and we're gonna take a look at it again today from Isaiah chapter 45, starting in verse number five. I am the Lord... There is none else, there is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace, and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Interesting phrase God says there. He says, I create evil. So the question that we have uh, that we're gonna answer today, does God cause my suffering? Okay, difficult times happen. People do uh, ugly things. Uh, We fall into our own sin from time to time. We make poor decisions uh, of our own. But does God ever actually on purpose cause my suffering? We have to answer that question today as we take a look at the sovereignty of God. Now, before we get started, I have a pop quiz for you that you have not studied for yet. Now, if you want to cheat in church and you're a cheater, you can read the verses underneath the questions before you answer them. But you're not a cheater, are you? We're people of integrity. We're not gonna cheat and look at the answers uh, before time. So uh, as you take a look at your notes here this morning, you'll have uh, four questions with yes or no beside them. Circle your answer. Then we're gonna go through these and grade these one by one and discuss the answers for it. Uh, Question number one, does God do evil? Yes or no, circle your answer there. Does God do evil? Yes or no. And this is not up for discussion either. Don't discuss it with your neighbor. And you might even need to get a cover sheet in case your neighbor wants to cheat off of you. Question number two, does God prevent evil? Yes or no? Next, does God send evil? Yes or no? Question number four, does God allow others to do evil? Yes or no? All right, go back to the beginning of your notes. Let's take a look at what we're talking about when we talk about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means that God possesses all power and is the ruler of all things. God rules and works according to his eternal purpose, even through events that seem to contradict or oppose his rule. This means the sovereignty of God means that God is in charge of everything. Nothing happened that takes God by surprise. Nothing happens in your life that God looks at and goes, oh no, I don't know what to do about that now. I'm not sure how we should proceed. Nothing happens in your life that God did not allow to happen because God has a plan for everything that happens. The Bible tells us that God knows the beginning from the end and that he has ordained all things. 
from beginning to end. That means before God ever created the earth until the time that God creates a new heaven and new earth, he already has a plan on how everything fits together in his overarching sovereignty. He has a plan how everything's gonna work out and you and I are a small, small part of that plan that God has for all mankind and for all of eternity. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. Now, when we begin to talk about the sovereignty of God, it brings up questions that people have. For example, if God already knows what I'm going to do, then do I really have a choice to choose what I'm gonna do because God already knows? If God already has everything planned out from beginning to end, does that mean that you and I are just uh, fulfilling a script that God's already written and we couldn't choose to do differently if we wanted to? Sometimes people say, well, if God already knows how I'm gonna die, what if I step out in front of a bus uh, and, and ruin God's plans and then I, I, I take my own life and then uh, that messes up God's plan? No, God already knew that you'd be a knucklehead and step out in front of a bus because God already has it all planned out. God already knows from the beginning from the end. So then the question comes up, well, then do I really have free will to do as I please if God's already got everything figured out or am I just a robot going through with God's plan? These are all very important questions and there's several different philosophical viewpoints on the sovereignty of God that we're gonna run through uh, the top three major ones. Again, people have written volumes of books on this. We're just gonna scratch the surface on it this morning. Under the uh, heading, Understanding the Sovereignty of God in your notes there, the first uh, type of uh, viewpoint is free will, will libertarianism. The idea behind this is that our choices are of our own free will, not controlled by others or outside forces, that you have the opportunity to choose everything you want any way that you want, but there is one caveat. God can put no restrictions whatsoever on the choices that you make. Now, this is kind of confusing on the surface, so I wanna help you with this this morning. I'll pay close attention to this illustration I'm gonna give you. If I say to you today, we're gonna order pizza for lunch. That's good news, right? We're gonna order pizza for lunch and you can have whatever kind of pizza you want for lunch. You show up and it will be here. And you come to get your pizza and you come to pick it up and some people are thinking in their mind right now, I'm getting the, the pizza combo or some people are like, I want all veggies. Me, I'm a pepperoni or cheese kind of guy. It's either one way or the other uh, with that. And so I say, I, I come up, you come up and you say, uh, I'll take a pizza combo for lunch. And I said, well, you get cheese or pepperoni. You go, well, you told me I could choose anything. I said you could choose everything, but really your only two choices are cheese or pepperoni. And you said, well, I guess I'll take pepperoni then. Did you really have a choice to choose whatever you wanted? The answer to that would be no, your choices were already decided for you. So free will libertarianism says the only way that you can truly have free will is if every opportunity to do as you wish were on the table and there's no outside forces that are uh, constricting you or guiding you or uh, causing you to choose one thing over another, that to be truly free and to truly have a free choice, you have to have no outside interference. And so the idea behind this is, is that God could put no restrictions on you. God doesn't guide the direction that you go. And that, if you know anything about the Bible, kind of goes in opposition to who God is. Free will libertarianism also leads to the idea that we took a look at last week called open theism and the fact that God really doesn't know what the next step is. He's kind of figuring it out as he goes along. And so uh, if you step out in front of a bus, God goes, oh no, I didn't think he would do that. What are we gonna do with this? 
of, oh no, I didn't think that uh, that man would leave his wife. What should we do with this situation now? And the idea of open theism goes against the Bible, first of all, altogether. And it creates God as this guy in the sky who's just trying to figure everything out as he goes. And that's not God at all. God has everything ordained from beginning to end. So we as Bible-believing Christians would reject the idea of free will libertarianism. Now, as with any type of philosophical viewpoint, there's some things that you look at that and you go, well, that kind of makes sense. So this is kind of true, but the overarching uh, package deal of that we would have to reject uh, because the Bible uh, teaches otherwise. Next, determinism is the viewpoint that basically you and I are robots fulfilling a script that's been given. Our choices are not ours but have already been made for us. We're simply following a script from which we cannot deviate. It's a doctrine that all events, including human action, are ultimately determined by causes external to the will. This means that you and I have no free choice. We have no free will. We're simply doing as God intends us to do. We cannot do anything else. Now, the problem with the idea of determinism is this. If I sin against God, I'm just following a script. I'm just doing as uh, has been laid out for me. Therefore, can I really be held responsible for my actions? Because somebody's making me do this. I didn't choose to do this. Therefore, I can't really be held responsible for what takes place. And so determinism has the idea that you and I are not in charge of anything, that you and I just show up and we're just pawns in a game. We're just uh, robots that follow instructions. We're just actors who play out a script and we have no ability to choose for ourselves. And again, if you know anything about the Bible, you'll know that that's not true either because you and I are held responsible for our decisions and our actions. It leads to the third major school of thought, which we as Bible-believing Christians would subscribe to. And that's compatibilism. In this view, man makes real choices and will be held responsible by God for these choices. The choices that man makes emanate from his desires, and God grants the creatures a certain amount of freedom, but that freedom always operates within the boundaries of God's sovereignty. So this says you and I have the free will to choose, but we still have to choose within the range of the things that God's given us. What that means is God can influence our actions. God can influence our thoughts. God can't influence our circumstances or our decisions. That God has the right to do that because God is working within an overarching story of eternity that is his story, not necessarily ours. And so we would fall into this, this third viewpoint that God is in charge, but man has free will to make his own choices. And we will be held responsible for such choices as well. This is incredibly important because this relates directly to our salvation. You and I have sinned against the holy God. We chose to go against God. Uh, The Bible says that every single one of us were born at odds with God. We were born in sin, that the sin of Adam has been passed on to all mankind, and because of that, we have sinned against the holy God, and we are responsible for that. Now, sometimes people say, well, I didn't ever choose to rebel against God. I was just born into that. But you and I make decisions every single day to go against God's law, against God's Uh, guidelines against God's plan. And because of that, the Bible says that we're sinners. And because we are held morally responsible for our sin, the Bible says sin has a price that must be paid. And that price is death. Romans chapter six, verse number 23, for the wages of sin is death. That means you and I will die one day and spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. And that determination is not based on how good of a person we are or what good we've done with our life, but what have you done with Jesus Christ? 
The Bible says that when we sin, someone has to pay that price, someone has to die, and, and God's way for you to pay that price is to die and go to hell and pay for your sin. But God loves you too much to allow you to go to hell. God loves you too much to make that your only option. So God, Romans 5, 8, commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in it while we were yet sinners. Here's the beautiful words. Christ died for us. Jesus says, I died in your place. I'm willing to pay the penalty of your sin. You don't have to go to hell. I've already purchased your freedom if you're willing to receive it. And for anyone, the Bible says, anyone who comes to Jesus, he says, I'm never gonna cast anybody out. Regardless of your church background, regardless of your past sinful condition, regardless of anything that you've ever done, the Bible says if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can be born again. The word born again is a beautiful word. Jesus says in John chapter 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Being saved is the only way that you can go to heaven. And being saved is simply believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and believing that you have sinned against a holy God and putting your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and you do not know for sure that you are saved, please do not leave here without knowing for sure your sins are forgiven. I, I, I can't say that you're going to, to heaven or hell, but the Bible can. And the Bible says that for him that knows Jesus Christ as Savior, there's no condemnation. But the Bible says this, for him who is without the Son, the wrath of God abides on him that you are already have a death sentence on your head and the only hope that you have is Jesus Christ. You know for sure that you're saved today? If not, the suffering that you face here on this life is, is but a, a small fraction of the suffering you will see for all of eternity. God doesn't want it that way. That's why he sent Jesus to die for your sins. You need to be saved. And you have a choice to be saved or not. Totally up to you. Now let's start reviewing our answers to our quiz that we had this morning. First of all, does God do evil? What's the answer to that? No. Are you really sure about that? You're really sure. Okay. Well, let me tell you this. How about this? God told David in the book of 2 Samuel, don't number the children of Israel. Don't count them. You don't need to know how many people you have. You need to trust in me. And David said, well, I kind of like to know how many people we got. And so he tells his men, go out and count how many men we have ready for battle. Go out and count how many animals we have that are ready for battle and, and give me a report back. But God had told him not to do it. And David did it anyways. And what happened? Do you remember? God judged him. How many people died? 70,000 people died because David disobeyed God. Is that fair? We look at that and go, that's not fair. 70,000 people died. Why didn't David die? So you look at that and you go, does God do evil? God killed 70,000 people because one person disobeyed. Look at that and you go, that doesn't sound good to me. How about this? The children of Israel were in the wilderness and they were griping and complaining. They said, well, God, you should have just left us in Egypt. Well, at least we could have died with a full stomach there instead of bringing us out to the middle of nowhere to die in the desert. And the Bible says that God sent snakes to bite them and kill them because they complained. Would you say that that's good or that's right? I think we would look at that and go, that doesn't make a lot of sense. There's a man by the name of Korah who had been griping and complaining against Moses. And who does Moses think he is telling us what to do, bossing us around? And God said, Korah, 
you and your family, all of you, get out here. And the Bible says that Korah, his wife, his kids, his animals and everything stood in the middle of the field. And the Bible says that the, the ground gave way and swallowed up the whole family. Men, women, boys, girls killed him because Korah had a mouth that he couldn't control. Would you say that that's good? We can go again and again throughout the, the scriptures, the city of Jericho. When they took the city of Jericho, they marched around it seven times. The walls fell. They blew the trumpet. The walls fell. They went in and God says, don't let any living thing breathe. Everybody needs to die. Man, woman, child. You look at that and you go, is God still good or does God do evil? Are you still solid on your answer that you have there? You still want to keep that? All right. So the answer to that, does God do evil? No, he doesn't. Deuteronomy 32, some of you might have cheated and looked at the verses underneath. He is a rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment, the God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he in all of his ways. God chose to kill 70,000 of the children of Israel. God was right in his judgment. God chose to send snakes to bite people for complaining. He was right in his judgment. God chose to take a man's entire family because he complained and talked negatively about Moses. God was right in doing that, the Bible says. Genesis 18, 25, that be far from thee, do after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked. The righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God's a judge of all the earth and he does right. So even if God does what would appear to be evil, he is always righteous, always. This is a tough pill to swallow. When things don't go our way, when we feel like we've been shortchanged by God, when God even does something that would appear to us on the outset to be evil, know this, God is always right and just in his judgments because he's God. Now, you and I cannot fathom in our minds how all these things can be so. We can't reason these the best that we can. That's why God is God and we are not. Next, in a quiz, does God prevent evil? Yes or no? Some people say yes. Some people say no. The correct answer is yes. So, evil was coming, but God chose to prevent it. Genesis 31, 7, your father hath deceived me and changed my wages 10 times, but God suffered him not to hurt me. Exodus 12, 23, speaking, we talked about last week, the Passover lamb coming through Egypt and killing the firstborn son for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer, will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. So here we see that God is preventing sometimes evil from reaching his children. God prevents evil from taking place from time to time. And so while God doesn't do evil, and many times he also prevents evil. Question three, does God send evil? Yes or no? The answer to that is yes. Now, this is where people get really hung up. Now, wait a minute. God doesn't do evil, but he sends evil. Right. Well, doesn't that mean that he does evil? No, he didn't do the evil. He sent the evil. 
Oh, you're just you, you're just playing uh, playing loose with the uh, vocabulary words. It's just semantics. God does evil. No, God doesn't do evil. God does just and God does right. But many times to do just and right, God sends evil to accomplish his just and right plan. Does that make sense? So we see in First um, Samuel chapter 16, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 19, verse number 13. All these verses are in your notes. But we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. Genesis 19, you know where that place is? Anybody know? Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels come, and they're gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know what the angels said? Hey, you guys need to get out of here because God sent us to wipe this place out. Now, when he said to destroy it, he's not just talking about destroying the geographical location, knocking down buildings and stuff. We're talking about killing people here. And the angels were sent by God himself to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Was God righteous in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah? Absolutely, because they had rebelled against God and God had given multiple opportunities for them to make it right, but they chose not to. Next, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him and the servant said unto him, behold, now an evil spirit from God troubleth thee. Do you know the story? Samuel had, or Saul had disobeyed against God and God took his Holy Spirit from Saul and sent him and said, an evil spirit. It doesn't say that an evil spirit found Saul. It said that an evil spirit was sent from God to trouble Saul. We look at that and you go, wow, God even sends evil spirits people's way. Yes, he does, to accomplish his plan. Now, again, if you take a look at the plan that God had set, there would be another king who would come who would take Saul's place. What was that king's name? David. You may want to know one of the most famous people in all the Bible that came from David's lineage, Jesus Christ who's a rightful heir to the throne of Israel because he came from the lineage of David. So you look at how God sent an evil spirit to Saul and he took Saul's sinful condition and Saul's rebellion against God and God took that and brought from it our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you look at that and you go, wow, God sent evil to accomplish his will. Judges chapter nine, verse number 23, then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. You see Numbers chapter 21, we talked about this earlier, and the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there's no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. How many people? We don't know, but it was much people. Why? Complaining, God sent fiery serpents their way. Second Samuel 24, we see uh, again when David had numbered Israel. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed that there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men for one man's sin. This is a good place to pull over for just a second and you say, well, my sin only affects me. My sin doesn't have any, any effect on anybody else. I just want to do what I want to do. Hey, David thought the same thing, and 70,000 people paid the price. 
So the second that you think that your sin doesn't affect anybody else or your sin only affects you, please understand you have greatly miscalculated the devastating effects of sin. But God, totally righteous in all that he did. Next, number four, does God allow others to do evil? God allows it. God permits it. God even gives permission for evil to take place. Yes or no? The answer to that is yes. God allows people to do evil. So we know that God doesn't send evil or God doesn't do evil. God sometimes prevents evil. Sometimes God sends evil and God permits others to commit evil. One of the most prominent uh, illustrations of that in all the Bibles, Job chapter one, we see uh, into the throne room of God, Job one, verse number nine, and Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for naught or for no reason? How thou made a hedge about him and about his house, about all that he hath on every side, that thou blessed his work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he'll curse thee to thy face. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. That's heavy. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Satan comes to God and says, hey, Job's only following you because you've been good to him. And God says, I don't believe that's true. Do whatever you want to do to him, just don't touch him. And the devil goes, done. God actually gave him permission and says, what he does is in your, what you do to him is in your power. This is heavy. We don't have time to unpack it today, but God relegated his protection and power over Job's life to the devil. That's big. Why would God do that? Why would God give Satan such an opportunity? Because Job's life isn't the whole story. God's story stretches from eternity past to eternity future, and Job is just one of the many stories in God's massive unfolding story of eternity. And in the end of the the story, who got the glory from it? Job? No, God got the glory from it. So you and I, what takes place in our lives is not really about us at all. It's about God's glory. And there could be an opportunity in your life that God has chosen to take your life and relegate power and protection over to Satan. You gotta think of We don't know, this is the only recorded instance in scripture that we have of this, but we don't know that this is not something that takes place on a daily basis. We don't know. But it's possible that the suffering that you're enduring is God allowing it to take place in your life. We don't know. Well, we know that God does not do evil. God does ordain any evil that exists. Again, if God is sovereign, and he is, then any evil that takes place, any suffering that takes place has been preordained and preplanned by God. Job chapter one, verse number 20, and Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped and said, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Job says in Job chapter 1 here, hey, any good thing that I got, I got from God. If he wants to take it, he's free to take it. Job even tells his wife when she says, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? He said, we receive good from the hand of the Father. Shall we not also receive evil? Job, has to, Job understands, hey, there's going to be good and bad that we get from God, and we've got to take both of them together because at the end of the day, God is good, always. To say that God ordains something is to say that he has it planned and purposed and willed before the creation of the world. God already knew what you're going through, and he already has a plan to see you through it. I'll say that again. God already knows what you're going through, and he has a plan to see you through it. Notice I did not say he has a plan to get you out of it. Because that's what we're looking for, right? We want the exit. Hey, what can we do to get out of this mess that we're in? God may never take you out of the mess that you're in, but I promise you this, he will see you through it. That's a promise. And uh, I'm so excited. Um, Next Sunday, we're taking a look uh, at a phenomenal passage of Scripture where God tells you basically, choose your own path and choose what you're going to do. And one way is a, a path of blessing, one path is a path of cursing. The week after that, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse number 28 and 29. For we know that all things work together for good. That's what the Bible says, right? No, there's a lot more to that verse that we many times leave out. And what does good look like? That's the question we have to a- ask there. Because so many times people use that verse and they say, well, God's going to do what I want him to do. That's what it means he's going to work for good. That's not necessarily what it means. And when I say that God has ordained your suffering and that he will see you through it, that means he's going to be faithful every single step of the way, but the exit might not be as close as you would want it to be. But I promise you he's faithful. There's nothing that falls outside of God's ordaining will. No trials, no suffering, no evil, no good, no blessing. None of that falls outside of God's perfect plan or his ordaining will. That means when the worst of things happen to us, there's only one place to trace it back to, and that is the hand, the foreknowledge, and the foreordination of God. That's a heavy pill to swallow that when difficult times come my way, I know that they come from the hand of my loving heavenly Father. You see, God's ordained your suffering and he has a purpose, his glory, and you're good. Many times in the midst of suffering, this is not a great consolation to us. Again, we wanna know when is this gonna be over? What's the solution for this? How can I get out of this quickly? God brought you to this point and he will bring you through this point. He's faithful, but he wants two things out of it. First of all, he wants glory and secondly, he wants you to fulfill your purpose. And again, when we think of our good, we think God's gonna make this better for me or my circumstances are gonna look up or my situation's gonna change. That might not be the good that God wants to bring about in your suffering. That might not be what God wants to do amidst your trial. Maybe God wants to use you as an example to other people how to suffer with joy. Maybe God wants to use you as an example of what a God can do in the life of someone who's going through a difficult period of time. 
Maybe God wants to use you as an example. Maybe God wants your faith to touch somebody else. Maybe God, through your suffering, can be the light that shines to an unsaved family member or an unsaved neighbor. Maybe God's teaching your children something about your time of suffering. I'll never forget my daughter, McKeely. She was uh, one years old. We got a terrible diagnosis from the doctor. They thought it might be lymphoma cancer. They said, prepare for the worst. Angela's at the hospital with our daughter. She's going to have surgery. And I had to sit my boys down. My boys at the time, I think, uh, I think Van was like seven, and Thatcher would have been like maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe 12 or so, something like that. I had to sit my boys down in the living room and say, hey, your sister's sick, and we don't know what's going to happen, but we know that God's faithful, and God's going to bring us through it. And they said, well, is she going to die? We don't know. But I know this, that God's faithful. And I said, open up the Bible to the book of Job. And Job said, though the Lord slay me, yet I will trust him. Even if God takes your sister's life, we're gonna trust God through this. We're gonna see see this through because God's faithful. I'm telling you, this is one of the hardest conversations I've ever had to have in my entire life with anybody. But I believed it to be true. And I believe it to be true today as well. That whatever difficulty you're facing God knows, and he's in charge. And even if he chooses to take your life, you can trust him. If you know for sure that you're a child of God, you shouldn't fear death. That this life just means promotion to eternity with Jesus. Now, for me, I know what's gonna happen when I die. If I fall over dead from this platform right here, I know this, I'll be in heaven before my head hits the floor. So don't worry about me. I'm not trying to die. I don't want to see my kids grow up. I don't want to walk my daughters down the aisle when they're 45, 50 years old. I'm not, I'm not trying to die, but I don't fear death. I fear not fulfilling my purpose. I fulfill not doing the job that God has me on this earth to do. I fear living a meaningless life that when I die, it's just like, oh, he's dead, let's move on. Those are the things that I fear. I don't fear death because we have the promises of God. All of our trials, 100% of our trials, are Father-filtered. Nothing comes your way that has not yet passed through the heart of your loving Heavenly Father. And He gave it to you because He knows with His help you can handle this. You got this. God knows that in the midst of your suffering, the only place you have to run to is to him. He knows that and he designed it that way. So many times when suffering comes, we begin to look at every other avenue we can find to cause our suffering to stop or to get out of the mess that we're in. When we hit a financial difficulty, we begin to look at things that we can sell on Craigslist or yard sales that we can have, or maybe I can drive Uber, maybe I can deliver pizza, maybe I can get a second job, maybe I can do something else to to cause my finances to look up. Instead of the one place that we should look first, our Heavenly Father. God, would you give me wisdom on what to do? God, the Bible says that you own a cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. Would you give me the provision that I need to just live for your glory? then who gets the glory when God does provide? Not your second job or your witty business acumen that you had. God gets the glory from that. When you're faced with a difficult medical diagnosis, like our family was, and the doctors say, 
your daughter's healed and we don't know what happened. I can say, I know exactly what happened. God healed her. Well, it's, it's good that you say that, but we like to run a lot of tests. No, I get that, I get that. But God healed my daughter. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Had God chosen not to heal my daughter, I'd be telling you a story this morning of how faithful God was through that trial in our life because I still trust him. I don't just trust him when things work out in my favor. I trust him because he's promised to care for me. You see, the unsaved man and carnal Christian measure God's love by worldly standards. We took a look at this last week, but it's worth reviewing. You see, the carnal Christian or the unsaved man looks at, uh, first of all, superficial results. Do I have enough money in my bank account? Is my home nice enough? Is the car that I drive nice enough? Are all my kids healthy? Am I healthy? Do I have enough money in my 401k? Is my job uh, secure? Do I, am I able to live at the standard of living that everyone else does? If so, God loves me. If not, God hates me. And they judge by very superficial results. They view their suffering and difficulty on a short timeline. Why is this happening to me this week? Man, just last week, my car wouldn't start. Now this week, it's something else. And you're measuring it on a short timeline. Whereas if you were to zoom out a little bit, you can see God's faithfulness over time, how God's steered you clear of difficult times in your life, how God's weathered you through so many storms again and again and again. He's proved himself faithful. The carnal Christian or the unsaved man looks at life with a disconnected purpose. Just look at this situation for what it is. It's just today. This has happened to me today, this, this week. Man, I've been going through this rough spot for the last month. What's the big purpose in all of it, though? We forget that. But you see, the spirit-filled Christian measures God's love by eternal standards. They see this with eternal results. Hey, God is putting me through this situation so that I can be more like Jesus. God is putting me through this situation so that I can give him glory. I'm going through this because God wants me to trust him more. And they're able to view it on an eternal timeline that I get to be a part of God's big story that he's telling God gets to get glory through my life. And I see that from eternity past to eternity future, God's writing a story and I get to be a part of that story and here's my part. I get to play it and play it well. And that means that it has an eternal purpose too. Again, God's glory. This is not just something that's happening to me right now. This is a part of God's unfolding glory in my life. And so many times as a pastor, I've seen people come to the crossroad of suffering and they take a hard right away from God. I thought God was good, but he wasn't. And so they, they bail on their faith. But then I've seen people dig deeper. Then I've seen people knuckle up and go harder into their faith. That makes all the difference in the world. We shouldn't ask the question, does God cause my suffering? Because sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. The better question to ask is, what is God's purpose in my suffering? So to answer today's question, the big overarching question, does God cause suffering? Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. And so many times you and I want to put on our Sherlock Holmes hat and try to figure out why we're going through what we're going through. Well, maybe I'm going through this because of uh, something I did wrong last week. Maybe I'm going through this because God's trying to teach me this. Maybe I'm going through this because of a bad decision I made when I was a teenager. Maybe I'm going through this because of X, Y, or Z. And we begin to ask questions about why. That's the wrong question. The right question to ask though, is what is God's purpose in my suffering? God, why did you put me through this? Not how is this going to work out or how is this going to un unravel? Not what's the quickest way to get out of this? God, what's your purpose in this? 
Angela and I learned very early on in our marriage that God puts us through a series of difficulties and testing and trials on purpose. And when we go through trials, we have caused, it's caused us to pray at the beginning of trials, God, help us not to waste this trial. How can you waste it? Just hope that it's over with. Just kind of throw it all off and not put any thought into it, not put any prayer into it. But God has a purpose in your suffering. God has a purpose in your difficulty. God wants you to draw close to him. So ask that question, God, what's your purpose through this? Next, we shouldn't ask the question, why is this happening to me? Rather, God, how can I give you glory through this? Again, we want to ask the question, why? I think if anybody had that question, it's probably Job. God said about Job, Job is upright in all of his ways. There's nothing that Job's done to deserve this. We took a look at last week how the apostles saw a blind boy, and they asked, asked Jesus, hey, why is this boy blind? Was it his parents' sin, or was it his sin that caused him to be blind? And Jesus says, nobody sinned. It's so that the glory of God could be shown through this boy's blindness. So again, we shouldn't ask, why is this? When is this going to be over? We need to ask, God, how can you get glory through this? How can I make Jesus look good through my suffering? How can I point others to Jesus Christ through this process? As a pastor, it is my joy to walk with people through the best days of their life. Nothing more I enjoy than, than being there when someone gets married, being there when somebody has a baby, being there when somebody gets promoted, go to a promotion ceremony, go to retirement ceremonies. It's the joy of my life to be able to do stuff like that. On the flip side of it, as a pastor, I have to walk with people through the most difficult days of their life. And to see people come through that stronger, closer to God, turns that suffering into great joy. Uh, Tommy and Iris Peralta are part of our church. Been here since the very beginning of our church. Iris was here our very first Sunday, our grand opening Sunday. So Iris has been in our church for six years. Uh, Tommy came, I think, probably two or three weeks uh, into Hui Kala starting. Tommy was one of the very first people that ever got saved here at Hui Kala Baptist Church. Uh, Iris brought Tommy to church, sat down with Tommy after the service, and went through the gospel with him. I remember it distinctly sticks out in my mind because Tommy and I were sitting in two chairs in that what's now our super church uh, classroom over there. We're sitting across from each other. I shared the gospel with him. I got to the end. I said, Tommy, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior today? And if you do that, all of your sin will be forgiven. Every wrong you've ever done in your entire life will be wiped away, and you can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. He goes, yeah, awesome. He goes, wait, wait, does anybody ever actually say no to that part? And I go, dude, all the time. He goes, that makes no sense whatsoever. I go, it makes no sense to me either. And so, uh, so Tommy got saved, and he and Iris got engaged, had the opportunity to go through premarital counseling with them. Tommy and Iris were the very first couple that I ever married here at Hui Kala Baptist Church, very first couple I'd ever married in my life, and I was just praying that I would not mess it up, uh, and I didn't mess it up. And, uh, and so they've, uh, it's been awesome to see them grow in their love for each other and their love for the Lord through things like that. And um, I'll ask Iris to come at this time, if you would, and uh, share just her story of how she saw God uh, through suffering and how God showed himself sovereign through that. As we're going through this Sunday morning series on affliction and God's sovereignty, I wanted to share with you a recent trial um, that Tommy and I have gone through and how it helped us better understand God's sovereignty. In January, 
we were blessed to be expecting our first child. And then at the end of my sixth month of pregnancy, we found out that our baby didn't have a heartbeat. So we had to go through this devastating trial of delivering our stillborn baby girl. But God is really faithful and he's shown us so many things out of our loss. And so I wanted to just share a few of those things with you today. Um, God has really increased our faith and trust in him through our loss. There's nowhere else to turn to when you go through something like that. And um, it's really deepened my understanding of God's sacrificial love for us. How someone could willingly give up their child. But it's also given me a lot of opportunities to share my faith with others. And um, be open to talking more about Jesus and just how wonderful he is strengthened our marriage relationship and oddly enough it also provided a promotion opportunity for me at work we had two managers resign um, recently and allowed a director level position for me and all of this happened um, during the time I would have been on maternity leave and then my twin sister um, she came when we were going through this and after seeing what we went through she ended a dating relationship with an unsaved man and she saw that she really needed a Christian man in her life that would rely on God through life's trials so I don't think any of these are coincidences when I think about the person that God wants me to be 20 years or 50 years from now and what life experiences he's going to use in my life to mold me into the person he wants me to be. I realize that God in his sovereignty orchestrates these events in our life in his perfect plan for mine. And it may be to get a hold of our hearts, bring us closer to him, allow us to impact others, or simply, like Pastor said, to get glory for himself. So um, please continue to pray for us, and thank you, Pastor, for this series on God's sovereignty. I remember receiving that text message. It was a Friday, and uh, Iris had sent me a text so we just had our ultrasound, and they can't find a baby's heartbeat. Please pray for us. And um, I responded back, and I said, Angela and I are devastated to hear this news, but we trust in the sovereignty of God. That's what I said. What else do you say to a person in that moment? You, you don't, there's no words to say. God is faithful. God is sovereign. He knows precisely what he's doing in his own time. It means that we find rest in the sovereignty of God. We trust him. We don't always understand it. It doesn't always make sense to us. We don't all, don't, it doesn't always work out the way that we want to, but we have to trust. If we believe the word of God, we have to trust in the sovereignty of God that God knows what I'm going through and God's working it for his glory. We have to find that way to give him glory. 
been really easy for Tommy and Iris to quit, to give up on God, but they chose to dig in deeper. They chose to latch on harder to their faith. I remember after she delivered the child, she was here on a Wednesday night, and she joined her connect group and just sat in a connect group and talked about God's goodness and faithfulness through that. And she uh, sent me a text last week and said, Pastor, I was really encouraged by the message on suffering and God's sovereignty. And she said, Tommy and I have seen that in our own life. And I said, would you mind sharing that with our church family whenever you're ready? And I said, it doesn't have to be next Sunday, but whenever you feel like you're ready. And she says, I think I'm ready. And so, um, man, what a powerful story. And we could go around the room today as I look out here and see people tell stories of the most devastating day of your life and how God brought you through it and how God showed himself faithful. Don't ever forget that God is sovereign and he's faithful. One pastor and author put it this way, God's always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of about three of them. So true that there are so many things at work in our life. We only see the handful that are really causing us the most pain. You don't see the overarching plan that God has. You don't see God at work in so many other areas. All we can see is what we see directly in front of us. You know that story in the, the book of Numbers about the men that were bitten by snakes because they complained against God. The Bible says in, in Numbers chapter 21 that God told Moses to raise up a brazen serpent and everybody that looked upon that serpent would live. It wasn't a lot of consolation to the people who'd already died. It wasn't very easy to those family members who heard of the death of a loved one because they were complaining against God and snakes had bitten them and they died. But you know what would happen 1,400 years after that event? 1,400 years, Jesus would be sitting across from another man. And he says, hey, just like Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of God be lifted up, and everyone that looks to him will live. And the glory of God was shown through the suffering of Jesus Christ because of an event that take, took place 1,400 years earlier, that at the time it didn't make sense, it didn't come together at all, but in enough time, God's glory would be shown through that one event right there. That's how God's story works together. You and I are just a small piece of the puzzle story that fits together for God's glory. But friend, let me challenge you with this. Whatever you're going through today, whatever you're gonna go through next week or 10 years from now, know this, God is sovereign and he's always faithful. Trust in him, give him glory, and I promise you, he is sufficient to make it through. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you do not know for sure that you're saved, know this, the wrath of God abides on you and it will not get better for you, it will only get worse. So today, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Be saved, be born again, and be a part of God's plan of giving him glory and living under the protection of God's sovereignty. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.